October 8, 1871, was a terrible day in the American upper Midwest. In the history books, that day marks the tragedy remembered as the Chicago Fire, which gutted most of that city's core and cost hundreds of millions in damages. But few people know or remember the Peshtigo, Wisconsin Fire, which occurred that same day. And for that reason, missed the headlines it deserved when over 1,500 people in 12 communities were burned to death in a cyclone-style wildfire that destroyed homes, businesses, towns, and farms over an area half again as large as the state of New Hampshire. Today, in Part 2, we remember that tragedy and remember the lives of those who suffered. In the same way we covered the Titanic story with the eyewitness account, The Loss of the Titanic, we offer the remainder of the eyewitness account of the Peshtigo Fire by Father Perrin, who served two churches in that area, and had known the people and the towns intimately before, during, and after the fire. He tells it better than we could ever hope to do. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and this is Part 2 of the Peshtigo Fire at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. It was about 10 o'clock when we entered into the river. When doing so, I neither knew the length of time we would be obliged to remain there, nor what would ultimately happen to us. Yet, wonderful to relate, my fate had never caused me a moment of anxiety from the time that, yielding to the involuntary impulse warning me to prepare for danger, I had resolved upon directing my flight towards the river. Since then, I had remained in the same careless frame of mind which permitted me to struggle against the most insuperable obstacles, to brave the most appalling dangers, without ever seeming to remember that my life might pay the forfeit. Once in water up to our necks, I thought we would at least be safe from the fire, but it was not so. The flames darted over the river as they did over the land. The air was full of them, or rather the air itself was on fire. Our heads were in continual danger. It was only by throwing water constantly over them and our faces and beating the river with our hands that we kept the flames at bay. Clothing and quilts had been thrown into the river to save them, doubtless, and they were floating all around. I caught at some that came within reach and covered with them the heads of the persons who were leaning against or clinging to me. These wraps dried quickly in the furnace-like heat and caught fire whenever we ceased sprinkling them. The river was brighter than by day, and the spectacle presented by these heads rising above the level of the water, some covered, some uncovered, the countless hands employed in beating the waves, was singular and painful in the extreme. So free was I from the fear and anxiety that might naturally have been expected to reign in my mind at such a moment, that I actually perceived the ludicrous side of the scene at times, and smiled within myself at it. When turning my gaze from the river, I chanced to look either to the right or left. Before me or upwards, I saw nothing but flames. Houses, trees, and the air itself were on fire. Above my head, as far as the eye could reach into space, alas, I saw nothing but immense volumes of flames covering the firmament, rolling one over the other with stormy violence as we see masses of clouds driven wildly hither and thither by the fierce power of the tempest. Near me, on the bank of the river, rose the store belonging to the factory, a large three-story building filled with tubs, buckets, and other articles. 
Sometimes the thought crossed my mind that if the wind happened to change, we would be buried beneath blazing ruins of this place. But still the supposition did not cause me much apprehension. When I was entering the water, this establishment was just taking fire. The work of destruction was speedy, for in less than a quarter of an hour, the large beams were lying blazing on the ground while the rest of the building was either burned or swept off into space. Not far from me, a woman was supporting herself in the water by means of a log. After a time, a cow swam past. There were more than a dozen of these animals in the river, impelled thither by instinct, and they succeeded in saving their lives. The first mentioned one overturned in its passage the log to which the woman was clinging, and she disappeared into the water. I thought her lost, but soon saw her emerge from holding on with one hand to the horns of the cow and throwing water on her head with the other. How long she remained in this critical position I know not, but I was told later that the animal had swam to shore, bearing her human burden safely with her, and what threatened to bring destruction to the woman had proved the means of her salvation. At the moment I was entering the river, another woman, terrified and breathless, reached its bank. She was leading one child by the hand, and held pressed to her breast what appeared to be another, enveloped in a roll of disordered linen, evidently caught up in haste. Oh, horror! On opening these wraps to look on the face of her child, it was not there. It must have slipped from her grasp in her hurried flight. No words could portray the look of stupor, of desolation, that flitted across the poor mother's face. The half-smothered cry, Ah! My child! escaped her. Then she wildly drove to force her way through the crowd so as to cast herself into the river. The force of the wind was less violent on water than on land and permitted the voice to be heard. I then endeavored to calm the anguish of the poor bereaved woman by suggesting that her child had been found by others and saved. But she did not even look in my direction, but stood there motionless, her eyes wild and staring, fixed on the opposite shore. I soon lost sight of her and was informed subsequently that she had succeeded in throwing herself into the river where she met her death. Things went well enough with me during the first three or four hours of this prolonged bath, owing in part, I suppose, to my being continually in motion, either throwing water on my own head or on that of my neighbors. It was not so, however, with some of those who were standing near me, for their teeth were chattering and their limbs convulsively trembling. Reaction was setting in and the cold penetrating throughout their frames. Dreading that so long a sojourn in the water might be followed by severe cramps, perhaps death, I endeavored to ascend the bank a short distance so as to ascertain the temperature. But my shoulders were scarcely out of the river when a voice called to me, Father, beware, you are on fire. The hour of deliverance from this prison of fire and water had not yet arrived. The struggle was not yet over. A lady who had remained beside me since we had first taken to the river, and who, like all the others, had remained silent till then, now asked me, Father, do you not think this is the end of the world? I do not think so, was my reply. But if other countries are burned as ours seems to have been, the end of the world, at least for us, must be at hand. After this, both relapsed into silence. 
There is an end to all things here below, even misfortune. The longed-for moment of our return to land was at length arriving, and already sprinkling of our heads was becoming unnecessary. I drew near the bank, seated myself on a log, being in this manner only partly immersed in the water. Here I was seized with a violent chill. A young man perceiving it threw a blanket over me which at once afforded me relief, and soon after I was able to leave this compulsory bath in which I had been plunged for about five hours and a half. I came out of the river about half past three in the morning, and from that time I was in a very different condition, both morally and physically, to that in which I had previously been. Today, in recalling the past, I can see that the moment most fraught with danger was precisely that in which danger seemed at an end. The atmosphere, previously hot as the breath of a furnace, was gradually becoming colder and colder, and after having been so long in the river, I was of course exceedingly susceptible to its chilly influence. My clothes were thoroughly saturated. There was no want of fire, and I easily dried my outer garments, but the inner ones were wet, and their searching dampness penetrated to my inmost frame, affecting my very lungs. Though close to a large fire, arising from heaps of burning fragments, I was still convulsively shivering, feeling at the same time a complete prostration of body and spirit. My chest was oppressed to suffocation, my throat swollen, and in addition to an almost total inability to move, I could scarcely use my voice to utter even a word. Almost lifeless, I stretched myself out full length upon the sand. The latter was still hot, and the warmth in some degree restored me. Removing shoes and socks, I placed my feet in immediate contact with the heated ground, and felt additionally relieved. I was lying beside the ruins of the large factory, the beams of which were still burning. Around me were piles of iron hoops belonging to the tubs and buckets lately destroyed. With the intention of employing these latter to dry my socks and shoes, now the only possessions left me. I touched them, but found they were still intolerably hot. Yet, strange to say, numbers of men were lying, some face downward, across these iron circles. Whether they were dead, or rendered almost insensible from the effects of damp and cold, were seeking the warmth that the sand afforded me, I cannot say. I was suffering too intensely myself to attend to them. My eyes were now beginning to cause me the most acute pain, and this proved the case, to a greater or less extent, with all those who had not covered theirs during the long storm of fire through which we had passed. Notwithstanding I had kept head and face streaming with water, the heat had nevertheless injured my eyes greatly, though at the moment I was almost unconscious of the circumstance. The intense pain they now caused, joined to a feeling of utter exhaustion, kept me for a length of time extended on the earth. When able, I dried my wet garments, one after the other, at the blazing ruins, and those near me did the same. As each individual thought of himself, Without minding his neighbor, the task was easy even to the most scrupulous and delicate. Putting on dry clothes afforded immediate relief to the pain and oppression on my chest, enabling me to breathe with more ease. Finally, day dawned on a scene and whose horror and ruin none were as yet fully acquainted. 
I received a friendly summons to proceed to another spot where the greater number of those who had escaped were assembled. But the inflammation of my eyes had rapidly augmented, and I was now perfectly blind. Someone led me, however, to the place of refuge. It was a little valley near the river's edge, completely sheltered by sand hills, and proved to be the very place where I had intended taking refuge the evening previous, though prevented reaching it by the violence of the hurricane. Some had succeeded in attaining it, and had suffered comparatively far less than we had done. The tempest of fire had passed, as it were, above this spot, leaving untouched the shrubs and plants growing within it. Behold us then, all assembled in this valley, like the survivors after a battle, some safe and well, others more or less wounded. Some were very much so, especially a poor old woman who, fearing to enter the river completely, had lain crouched on the bank, partly in the water, partly out of it, and, consequently, exposed to the flames. She was now stretched on the grass, fearfully burned, and suffering intense agony, to judge from her heart-rending moans and cries. As she was dying, and had asked for me, I was brought to her, though I fear I proved but a poor consoler. I could not unclose my eyes, and could scarcely speak, and felt so exhausted and depressed myself that it was difficult to impart courage to others. The poor sufferer died shortly after. Those among us who had sufficient strength for the task dispersed in different directions to seek information concerning the friends whom they had not yet seen, and returned with appalling tidings relating to the general ruin and the number of deaths by fire. One of these told me that he had crossed to the other side of the river and found all the houses, as well as the church, in ashes, while numbers of corpses were lying by the wayside, so much disfigured by fire as to be beyond recognition. Well, I replied, since it is thus, we will all proceed to Marinette, where there's a fine church, new presbytery, and schoolhouse, capable of lodging a great number. About eight o'clock, a large tent, brought on by the company, was erected for the purpose of sheltering the women, children, and the sick. As soon as it was prepared, someone came and urged me to profit of it. I complied, and stretched myself in a corner, taking up as little place as possible, so as to leave room for others. But the man employed by the company to superintend the erection of the tent had evidently escaped all injury to his eyes during the night, for he perceived me at once. He was one of those coarse and brutal natures that seem inaccessible to every kindly feeling, though he manifested a remarkable interest in the welfare of the ladies, and would allow none but them under his tent. As soon as his glance fell on me, he ordered me out, accompanying the rude command with a perfect torrent of insulting words and blasphemies. Without reply, I turned over, passing beneath the canvas, and quickly found myself outside. One of the ladies present raised her voice in my defense, and vainly sought to give him a lesson in politeness. I never heard the name of this man, and still rejoice that it is unknown to me. Ten o'clock arrived. After the sufferings of the night previous, many longed for a cup of hot tea or coffee, but such a luxury was entirely out of our reach amid the desolation and ruin surrounding us. Some of the young men, after a close search, 
found and brought back a few cabbages from a neighboring field. The outer leaves, which were thoroughly scorched, were removed, and the inner part cut into thin slices and distributed among those capable of eating them. A morsel of cold, raw cabbage was not likely to prove of much use in our then state of exhaustion, but we had nothing better at hand. At length the people of Marinette were informed of our condition, and about one o'clock several vehicles laden with bread, coffee, and tea arrived. These vehicles were commissioned at the same time to bring back as many of our number as they could contain. Anxious to obtain news from Marinette, I inquired of one of the men sent to our assistance if Marinette had also suffered from the fiery scourge. Thank God, Father, no one perished, though all were dreadfully alarmed. We've had many houses, however, burned. All the mills and houses from our church down to the bay have gone. And the church? I asked. It is burned. And the handsome presbytery? Burned. The new schoolhouse? Burned as well. Ah, and I had promised the poor unfortunates of Pestigo to bring them to Marinette and shelter them in those very buildings. Thus I found myself bereft in the same hour of my two churches, two presbyteries and schoolhouse, as well as of all private property belonging to them or to myself. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Between one and two o'clock I left in one of the wagons for Marinette, and after arriving there, sojourned for some time at the residence of one of my parishioners, Mr. F. Garone, receiving under his hospital roof all the care my condition required. The two banks of the river respectively named Marinette and Menominee, and which united formed another parish, were strangely changed in appearance. These two sister towns, one situated on the south and the other on the north side of the Pestigo River, were no longer recognizable. Life and activity had entirely given place to silence and a species of woeful stupefaction. A few men only were to be seen going backwards and forwards, looking after their property, or asking details concerning the conflagration at Pestigo from those who had just arrived from that ill-fated spot. No women were to be seen in the streets, nor even in the houses, the latter having been abandoned. The children, too, with their joyous outcries and noisy mirth, had disappeared from the scene. These shores, a short while since so animated, now resembled a desert, and it was a movement of overwhelming and uncontrollable terror that had created, as it were, this solitude, a terror which dated from the preceding night when the tempest of fire came surging on from Pestigo, consuming all that part of Marinette that lay in its path. Intelligence of the fate that had overtaken Pestigo farther increased this general feeling of alarm, till it culminated in a perfect panic. Dreading a similar catastrophe to that of Pestigo, many families hastened towards the bay, embarking on the steamers Union, Dunlap, and St. Joseph, which had been kept near the shore so as to afford a refuge to the terrified inhabitants. 
The consternation was indescribable, and one unfortunate man, on arriving panting and breathless at the boat, fell dead from fear or exhaustion. These boats afforded anything but a safe place of refuge, for if the conflagration had broken out suddenly and raised as fiercely as it had done at Pestigo, nothing could have preserved these boats from the flames, and the only alternative left to those on board would have been death by fire or water. Fear, however, is generally an untrustworthy counselor, and the expedients it suggests remarkably ill-chosen. The inhabitants of Marinette and Menominee passed the night of October 8th dispersed in the different boats, and it is unnecessary to add that few slept during those hours of strange anxiety. Terror effectually banished slumber, producing the result fear generally does on the Christian soul, turning it instinctively to prayer, even as the terror-stricken child casts itself into the arms of the mother it is summoned to its help. What are we, poor mortals, exposed to the wild fury of the unchained elements, but helpless children? The Catholics present with one accord cast themselves on their knees and prayed aloud, imploring the ruler of the elements to stay his vengeful arm and spare his people. They prayed without shyness or human respect. Doubtless there were present those who had perhaps never learned to pray, or who had forgotten how to accomplish that all-important duty and these latter might in other circumstances have felt annoyed at such a public manifestation of devotion. But in this hour of common peril, all hearts involuntarily turned towards heaven as their only resource. There were no tokens of incredulity, impiety, or bigotry evinced by any. The Protestants who were present, being unacquainted with the Catholic formula of prayer, could not unite their supplications with those of the latter, but they encouraged them to continue their devotions, and when they paused, solicited them to recommence. Danger is a successful teacher, its influence immediate and irresistible. No reasoning succeeds so quickly in making men comprehend the greatness of God and their own insignificance. His almighty power and their own helplessness. Naught else detaches souls so completely from earth and raises them towards him on whom we all depend. The preceding details furnished by individuals coming and going from the boats were full of interest to me. During this time I remained with my kind host, Mr. Guerin, being too ill even to leave the house. The kind attentions of which I was the object soon restored me in some degree to health. Tuesday evening I was able to visit several persons who had been injured more or less grievously by the fire, and to prepare the dying for their last end, as far as lay in my power, in the total absence of everything necessary on the sad occasion. Feeling strong enough, I resolved to return to Pestigo on Tuesday night and commenced my preparations. The clothes I wore had been greatly injured by my long sojourn in the water, and I would have willingly replaced them but found this impossible. The storekeepers, fearing a similar misfortune to that which had overtaken the merchants of Pestigo, had packed up the greater part of their merchandise and buried it. I could get nothing save a suit of coarse, yellow material such as workmen wear whilst engaged in sawmills. In the absence of something better, it had to answer, and about ten o'clock at night 
I went on board a steamboat about leaving for Green Bay, calling previously, however, at Peshtigo. The night was very stormy, and it was only about daybreak that we ventured to land, the water being very rough when we reached Peshtigo Landing, which was about nine or ten in the morning. I remained there only a few hours, during which time I visited the sick beds of several victims of the conflagration. About one o'clock in the afternoon, a car was leaving for Peshtigo, conveying thither men who went daily there for the purpose of seeking out and burying the dead. I took my place with them. The locomotives belonging to the company, having been burned, were now replaced by horses, and we progressed thus till we came up with the track of the fire. We walked the rest of the way, a distance of half a league, and this gave me ample opportunity for examining thoroughly the devastation and ruin wrought, both by fire and by wind. Alas, much as I had heard on the sad subject, I was still unprepared for the melancholy spectacle that met my gaze. It is a painful thing to have to speak of scenes which we feel convinced no pen could fully describe, nor words do justice to. It was on the 11th of October, Wednesday afternoon, that I revisited for the first time the site of what had once been the town of Peshtigo. Of the houses, trees, fences that I had looked on three days ago, nothing whatever remained, save a few blackened posts still standing, as if to attest to the impetuous fury of the fiery element that had thus destroyed all before it. Wherever the foot chanced to fall, it rested on ashes. The iron tracks of the railroad had been twisted and curved into all sorts of shapes, whilst the wood which had supported them no longer existed. The trunks of mighty trees had been reduced to mere cinders, the blackened hearts alone remaining. All around these trunks I perceived a number of holes running downwards deep in the earth. They were the sockets where the roots had lately been. I plunged my cane into one of them, thinking what must the violence of that fire have been, which ravaged not only the surface of the earth, but penetrated so deeply into its bosom. Then I turned my wondering gaze in the direction where the town had lately stood. But nothing remained to point out its site except the boilers of the two locomotives, the iron of the wagon wheels, and the brick and stonework of the factory. All the rest was a desert, the desolation of which was sufficient to draw tears from the eyes of the spectator, a desert recalling a field of battle after a sanguinary conflict. Charred carcasses of horses, cows, oxen, and other animals lay scattered here and there. The bodies of the human victims, men, women, and children, had been already collected and decently interred their number being easily ascertained by counting the rows of freshly made graves. To find the streets was a difficult task, and it was not without considerable trouble that I succeeded at length in ascertaining the site where my house had lately stood. My next care was to look for the spot where I had buried my trunks and other valuables. This I discovered by means of the shovel which I had employed in digging the trench, and which I had thrown to a short distance, my task completed. There it still lay, half of the handle burned off, the rest in good order, and I employed it once again to disinter my effects.
on moving the sand, a disagreeable odor, somewhat resembling that of brimstone, exhaled from it. My linen appeared at the first glance to be in a state of perfect preservation, having kept even its whiteness with the exception of the pleats, which were somewhat discolored. But on touching it, it fell to pieces as if the substance had been consumed by some slow, peculiar process or traversed by electricity. Whilst touching on this subject, we may add that many felt a shock of earthquake at the moment that everything on the surface of the earth was trembling before the violence of the hurricane. Here again was a total loss. A few calcined bricks, melted crystal, with crosses and crucifixes, more or less destroyed, alone pointed out where my house had once been, while the charred remains of my poor dog indicated the site of my bedroom. I followed then the road leading from my house to the river, and which was the one I'd taken on the night of the catastrophe. There, the carcasses of animals were more numerous than elsewhere, especially in the neighborhood of the bridge. I saw the remains of my poor horse in the spot where I had last met him, but so disfigured by the fiery death through which he had passed that I had some difficulty in recognizing him. Those who have a horse and appreciate the valuable services he renders them will not feel surprised at my speaking twice of mine. There exists between the horse and his master a species of friendship akin to that which unites two friends, and which in the man frequently survives the death of his four-footed companion. While wandering among the ruins, I met several persons, with some of whom I entered into conversation. One was a bereaved father, seeking his missing children, of whom he had as yet learned nothing. If at least, he said to me, with a look of indescribable anguish, I could find their bones. But the wind has swept away whatever the fire spared. Children were seeking for their parents, brothers for their brothers, husbands for their wives. But I saw no women amid this scene of horror, which it would have been almost impossible for them to contemplate. The men I met, those sorrowful seekers for the dead, had all suffered more or less in the battle against wind and fire. Some had had a hand burned, others an arm or side. All were clothed in blackened, ragged garments, appearing, each one from his look of woeful sadness and miserable condition, like a ruin among ruins. They pointed out to me the places where they had found such and such individuals. There a mother lay prone on her face, pressing to her bosom the child she'd vainly striven to save from the devouring element. Here a whole family, father, mother, and children, lying together, blackened and mutilated by the fire, fiend. Among the ruins of the boarding house belonging to the company, more than seventy bodies were found, disfigured to such a fearful extent it was impossible to tell either age or sex. Farther on, twenty more had been drawn from a well. One of the workmen engaged in the construction of the church was found, knife in hand, with his throat cut. Two of his children lined beside him in a similar condition, while his wife lay a little further off, having evidently been burned to death. The name of this man was Tosley, and during the whole summer he had worked at the church at Peshtigo. Doubtless seeing his wife fall near him, and becoming convinced of the utter impossibility of escaping a fiery death, his mind became troubled, and he put an end to his own existence and that of his children. There were several other similar cases of suicide 
arising from the same sad causes. These heart-rending accounts, combined with the fearful desolation that met my gaze wherever it turned, froze my veins with horror. Alas, that I should have to record an incident such as should never have happened in the midst of that woeful scene. While struggling with the painful impressions produced in my mind by the spectacle on which I looked, my attention was attracted to another quarter by the sound of voices raised in loud excitement. The cause of the tumult was this. In the midst of the universal consternation pervading all minds, a man was found degraded enough to insult not only the general sorrow and mourning, but also death itself. Enslaved by the wretched vice of avarice, he had just been taken in the act of despoiling the bodies of the dead of whatever objects the fire had spared. A jury was formed, his punishment put to the vote, and he was unanimously condemned to be hanged on the spot. But where was a rope to be found? The fire had spared nothing. Somebody proposed substituting for the former an iron chain which had been employed for drawing logs, and one was accordingly brought and placed around the criminal's neck. Execution was difficult under the circumstances, and whilst the preparations dragged slowly on, the miserable man loudly implored mercy. The pity inspired by the mournful surroundings softened at length the hearts of the judges, and after having made him crave pardon on his knees for the sacrilegious thefts of which he'd been guilty, they allowed him to go free. It may have been that they merely intended frightening him in the first place. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Weary of noise and tumult and longing for solitude, I left my previous companions and followed for a considerable distance that road to Ocanto on which I had seen so many vehicles entering, turning their backs on the river to which I was hastening with the tabernacle. I had not gone far before I saw much more than I would have desired to see. All in this line had perished, and perished in masses, for the vehicles were crowded with unfortunates who, flying from death, had met it all the sooner, and in its most horrible form. In those places where the flames had enfolded their victims in their fiery clasp, nothing now was to be seen but calcined bones, charred mortal remains, and the iron circles of the wheels. It was with some difficulty that the human relics could be distinguished from those of the horses. The workmen of the company were employed in collecting these sad memorials and burying them by the wayside there to remain till such time as the friends of the dead might wish to reclaim and inter them in a more suitable manner. I left them at their mournful task and returned to the site where our church had so lately stood. There also all was in ashes, nothing remaining save the church bell. The latter had been thrown a distance of fifty feet. One half was now lying there intact while the other part had melted and spread over the sand in silvery leaves. 
The voice of this bell had been the last sound heard in the midst of the hurricane. Its lugubrious note yet seems at times to strike on my ear, reminding me of the horrors of which it was a forerunner. The graveyard lay close to the church, and I entered and waited there, for I expected momentarily the arrival of a funeral. It was that of a young man who had died the evening previous, in consequence of the terrible burns he had received. Never was burial service more poverty-stricken, nor priest more utterly destitute of all things necessary for the performances of the sad ceremony. Nor church, nor house, nor surplus, stole, nor breviary, nothing save prayer and a heartfelt benediction. I had felt this destitution still more keenly on two or three previous occasions when asked by the dying for the sacrament of extreme unction, which it was out of my power, alas, to administer to them. I left the graveyard with a heavy heart and turned my steps in the direction of the river, which I had to cross in order to seek for my tabernacle with whose ultimate fate I was unacquainted. A bright ray of consolation awaited me, and seldom was consolation more needed. I crossed the river on the half-charred beams of the bridge which had been joined together so as to offer a means of passage, though a very perilous one, to those who chose to trust themselves to it. I had barely reached the other side when one of my parishioners hastened to meet me, joyfully exclaiming, Father, do you know what's happened to your tabernacle? No, what is it? Come quickly then and see. Oh, Father, it is a great miracle. I hurried with him to that part of the river into which I had pushed as far as possible my wagon containing the tabernacle. This wagon had been blown over on its side by the storm whilst the tabernacle itself had been caught up by the wind and cast on one of the logs floating on the water. Everything in the immediate vicinity of this spot had been blackened or charred by the flames. Logs, trunks, boxes, nothing had escaped. Yet, strange to say, there rose the tabernacle, intact in its snowy whiteness, presenting a wonderful contrast to the grimy blackness of the surrounding objects. I left it in the spot where it had thus been thrown by the tempest for two days, so as to give all an opportunity of seeing it. Numbers came, though of course in that time of horror and desolation, there were too many too deeply engrossed with their own private griefs to pay attention to aught else. The Catholics generally regarded it as a miracle, and it was spoken of near and far, attracting great attention. Alas, nothing is more evanescent than the salutary impressions produced on the mind of man by divine blessings or punishments. Time and the preoccupations of life efface even the very remembrance of them. How few there are among the rare survivors of the fire that swept Peshtigo from the face of the earth, who still see the power of God and the calamity that then overwhelmed them, as well as in the preservation of the tabernacle, events which at the time of their occurrence made so deep an impression on their minds. When the duties which had detained me three days amid these mournful scenes were completed, I took the tabernacle from the place which it had occupied of late, and sent it on to Marinette, where I intended soon saying Mass. When the right time arrived, I forcibly opened the tiny door. There, 
circumstance as wonderful as the preservation of the tabernacle in the midst of the conflagration, I found the consecrated host intact in the monstrance, while the violent concussions the ciborium must have undergone had not caused it even to open. Water had not penetrated within, and the flames had respected the interior as well as the exterior, even to the silky tissue lining the sides. All was in a state of perfect preservation. These sacred objects, though possessing in reality but little intrinsic value, are nevertheless priceless in my eyes. I prize them as most precious relics and never look at or touch them without feeling penetrated with sentiments of love and veneration such as no other holy vessels, however rich and beautiful, could awake within me. In the little chapel at Marinette, which replaces the church burned there more than two years ago, the same tabernacle is on the altar and contains the same monstrous and saborium, which were so wonderfully preserved from the flames. And daily, during the holy sacrifice, I use them with a species of religious triumph as trophies of God's exceeding mercy, snatched so marvelously from destruction. I must beg my readers to return with me for a little while to the banks of Peshtigo River, but not to linger there long. Before removing the tabernacle, I was busily occupied three days and two nights, now in seeking for the dead, and then in taking up from the water various objects which I had thrown by armfuls at the moment of leaving my house into the wagon, and which had been overturned with it into the river. The most precious of all these was the chalice, which I was fortunate enough to find, together with the paten. My search was greatly facilitated by the opening of the dam and letting out of the waters which were here fifteen or twenty feet in depth. This step was necessary for the finding of the corpses of those persons who, either seized by cramps or drawn in by the current, had been drowned during the night of the hurricane. For the space of these three days, our only habitation was the tent, the shelter of which had been so arbitrarily refused me the preceding Monday. It covered us during our meals, which we took standing and as best we could, and during the night protected the slumbers of those who could sleep, a thing I found impossible. Our beds were made on a most economical plan. The river sand formed our substitute for mattresses, and a single blanket constituted our covering. During this period, I first learned the fate of the city of Chicago. A physician, come from Fond du Lac to attend to the sick and burned, brought a newspaper with him, and in it we read of the terrible ravages wrought by fire on that same night, and strange to say, about the same hour, not only at Peshtigo, but in many other places, and above all, Chicago. The great conflagration at Chicago proclaimed to the world by the myriad voices of journal and telegraph, created far and wide an immense outburst of compassion in favor of that unfortunate city, diverting entirely the general attention from the far more appalling calamities of which we had been the hapless victims. On the afternoon of Friday, the 13th, I had about finished my labors on the desolate banks of the Peshtigo River. The corpses found had all been decently interred, and the sick and maimed carried to different places of safety. Exhausted with fatigue and privation, I felt I could not bear up much longer, and accordingly took place in a wagon that had brought us supplies, and was now returning to Oconto, 
in which latter town I had friends who were awaiting my arrival with friendly impatience. I enjoyed two days of the rest at the residence of Father Vermore, the excellent parish priest of the French church. Monday following, I left for Green Bay to visit his lordship, Bishop Joseph Melcher, dead, alas, even now, while I write these lines. As often happens in such cases, the most contradictory rumors had been circulated with regard to myself. Some declared that I had been burned in the church whither I had gone to pray a moment previous to the outburst of the storm. Others asserted that I had met a fiery death in my own abode, whilst many were equally positive that I had perished in the river. On seeing me, the bishop, who had naturally been rendered anxious by these contradictory reports, eagerly exclaimed, "'Oh, at last! I have been so troubled about you. Why did you not write?' "'My lord, I could not,' was my reply. "'I had neither pen, ink, nor paper, nothing but river water.' He generously offered me everything I required, either from his library or wardrobe, but I declined the kind offer, as there were still a number of my parishioners on the river Menominee, and it was for them to help, not him. He then wished to appoint me to another parish, declaring that I merited repose after all I'd endured, and that a further sojourn among my people, poor and decimated in number, would be only a continuation of suffering and hard toil. Remembering, however, that my parishioners would thus be left without a priest at the time when the ministrations of one would be doubly necessary to them, recalling also how much better it was that their poverty and privation should be shared by one who knew and loved them, I solicited and obtained permission to remain among my flock. Soon, however, the sufferings I had endured began to tell on my constitution, and to such an extent that, having been invited by the Reverend Prude, parish priest of Green Bay, to preach on all saints, he was told by Bishop Melcher he must not count on me, as my brain was seriously injured by the fiery ordeal through which I had passed. I cannot well say whether this was really the case. I know that I was terribly feeble, and hoping that a few months' repose might restore my health, I resolved to travel, determined to make the trip conducive at the same time to the welfare of my impoverished parishes. My first intent was to visit Louisiana, returning by the east, but I was destined soon to learn that my strength was unequal to the task. Arrived at St. Louis, I was attacked by a fever that kept me confined to the bed each day for three or four hours, and which made sad inroads on the small stock of health that was left to me. Accordingly, I went no further. The kind people of St. Louis showed me a great deal of sympathy. I had made friends among them whom I could never forget, and whom meeting with once more would be a source of great pleasure. I will not mention their names here, but they are written on my heart in ineffaceable characters. I can do nothing myself to prove my gratitude, but I will whisper their names to our most powerful and most clement lady of lords in her church of Marinette, and she will atone for my incapacity. It may be as well to record here some of the extraordinary phenomena and peculiar characteristics of the strange fire that wrought so much desolation. Though I was not personally a witness to them all, I was too near the inner portion of the circle to be able to see much of what was passing on the outside. It is not he who is in the middle of the combat that has the best view of the battle and its details, but rather the man who contemplates it from some elevated point overlooking the plain. 
whole forests of huge maples, deeply and strongly rooted in the soil, were torn up, twisted and broken, as if they'd been willow wands. A tree standing upright here or there was an exception to an almost general rule. There lay those children of the forest, heaped up one over the other, in all imaginable positions, their branches reduced to cinders, and their trunks calcined and blackened. Many asseverated that they had seen large wooden houses torn from their foundations and caught up like straws by two opposing currents of air which raised them till they came in contact with the stream of fire. At that point they burst into flames and exposed thus to the fury of two fierce elements, wind and fire, were torn to pieces and reduced to ashes almost simultaneously. Huge houses. Still the swiftness with which this hurricane, seemingly composed of wind and fire together, advanced, was in no degree proportioned to its terrible force. By computing the length of time that elapsed between the rising of the tempest in the southwest and its subsiding in the northeast, it will be easily seen that the rate of motion did not exceed two leagues an hour. The hurricane moved in a circle, advancing slowly, as if to give time to prepare for its coming. Many circumstances tended to prove that the intensity of the heat produced by the fire was in some places extreme, nay, unheard of. I've already mentioned that the flames pursued the roots of the trees into the very depths of the earth, consuming them to the last inch. I plunged my cane down into these cavities and convinced myself that nothing had stayed the course of combustion save the utter want of anything to feed on. Hogsheads of nails were found entirely melted through, lying outside the direct path of the flames. Immense numbers of fish of all sizes died, and the morning after the storm the river was covered with them. It would be impossible to decide what was the cause of their death. It may have been owing to the intensity of the heat, the want of air, necessary for respiration, the air being violently sucked in by the current tending upwards to that fierce focus of flame or they may have been killed by some poisonous gas. It is more than probable that for a moment the air was impregnated with an inflammable gas most destructive to human life. I've already mentioned the tiny globules of fire flying about my house at the moment I quitted it. Whilst on my way to the river, I met now and then gusts of air utterly unfit for respiration, and was obliged on these occasions to throw myself on the ground to regain my breath unless already prostrated involuntarily by the violence of the wind. Whilst standing in the river, I had noticed, as I've already related, on casting my eye upwards, a sea of flame, as it were, the immense waves of which were in a state of violent commotion, rolling tumultuously one over the other, and all at a prodigious height in the sky, and consequently far from any combustible material. How can this phenomenon be explained without admitting the supposition that immense quantities of gas were accumulated up in that air? Strange to say, there were many corpses found bearing about them no traces of scars or burns, and yet in the pockets of their clothing, equally uninjured, watches, scents, and other articles in metal were discovered completely melted. How was it also that many escaped with their lives here and there on the cleared land, as well as the woods. The problem is a difficult one to solve. 
The tempest did not rage in all parts with equal fury, but escape from its power was a mere affair of chance. None could boast of having displayed more presence of mind than others. Generally speaking, those who happened to be in low-lying lands, especially close to excavations, or even freshly plowed earth with which they could cover themselves, as the Indians do, succeeded in saving their lives. Most frequently the torrent of fire passed at a certain height from the earth, touching only the most elevated portions. Thus no one could meet it standing erect without paying the penalty of almost instantaneous death. When the hurricane burst upon us, many, surprised and terrified, ran out to see what was the matter. A number of these persons assert that they then witnessed a phenomenon which may be classed with the marvelous. They saw a large black object resembling a balloon, which object revolved in the air with great rapidity, advancing above the summits of the trees towards a house which it seemed to single out for destruction. Barely had it touched the ladder when the balloon burst with a loud report, like that of a bombshell, and at the same moment, rivulets of fire streamed out in all directions. With the rapidity of thought, the house thus chosen was enveloped in flames within and without, so that the persons inside had no time for escape. It is somewhat difficult to calculate the extent of territory overrun by the fiery scourge on account of the irregularity of the course followed by the latter. Still, without exaggeration, the surface thus ravaged, extending from the southwest to the northeast of Peshtigo, may be set down as not far from fifteen to twenty leagues in length by five or six in width. The number of deaths in Peshtigo, including the farmers dwelling in the environs, was not less than one thousand, that is to say, about half the population. More than eight hundred known individuals had disappeared, but there were crowds of strangers, many of whom had arrived that very morning, whose names had not been registered, and whose number will forever remain unknown. Among those who escaped from the awful scourge, many have since died, owing to the hardships then endured, whilst others are dropping off day by day. A physician belonging to Green Bay has predicted that before ten years, all the unfortunate survivors of that terrible catastrophe will have paid the debt of nature, victims of the irreparable injury inflicted upon their constitutions by smoke, air, water, and fire. If the prediction continues to be as faithfully realized in the future as it has been in the past, my turn will also come. May the construction of the Church of Our Lady of Lords at Marinette be then completed, so that some grateful hearts may pray there for the repose of my soul. And that ends Father Perrin's eyewitness account called The Great Pestigo Fire. As told in Father Perrin's story, the fire jumped across the Peshtigo River and burned on both sides of the inlet town. Survivors reported that the firestorm generated a fire whirl, described as a tornado, that threw rail cars and houses into the air. Many escaped the flames by immersing themselves in the Peshtigo River, wells, or other nearby bodies of water. Some drowned, while others succumbed to hypothermia in the frigid river. The Green Island light was kept lit during the day because of the obscuring smoke, but the three-masted schooner George L. Newman was wrecked offshore, although the crew was rescued. 
At the same time, another fire burned parts of the Dour Peninsula. Because of the coincidence, some incorrectly assumed that the fire had jumped across the waters of Green Bay. In Robinson, now called Champion, on the Dour Peninsula, Sister Adele Brees and other nuns, farmers, and families fled to a local chapel for protection. There they participated in prayers and devotions to the Virgin Mary. Although the chapel was surrounded by flames, it somehow survived. Those gathered at the chapel considered their survival a miracle, and this is a short account of that story. Further south and east of Pestigo, Lower Door County and northern Brown and Kiwani counties were also burning. The town of Brussels was destroyed by the fire. Adele Brees and her companions at the chapel knew they could not escape the fire, so they took up the statue of Mary and bore it in procession around the grounds. They were joined by local people fleeing to the site. Father Pernan, in recording what Adele told him later, said they processed on their knees, praying the rosary. When the flame and wind blew so strongly in the direction of the chapel as to prevent their further progress, unless they exposed themselves to suffocation, Father Pernan wrote, they awaited a lull in the storm, or turning in another direction, continued to hope and pray. By morning, he continued, all the houses and fences in the neighborhood had been burned, with the exception of the school, the chapel, and the fence surrounding the six acres of land consecrated to the Blessed Virgin. Father Pernan noted that the area had not burned by the fire, a winding path surrounding the enclosure being only eight or ten feet wide, now shown out like an emerald island amidst a sea of ashes. Father Pernan, who rebuilt his two churches, stopped short of calling either the salvaging of the Pestigo Tabernacle or the survival of the chapel grounds a miracle. But he earnestly counseled anyone who could do so to visit Adele to question her about the events and return edified and happy at heart. The Pestigo Tabernacle was later moved to Marinette, and its whereabouts became a mystery. In the 1970s, Auxiliary Bishop John Grellinger of the Green Bay Diocese began a search for it. Today, the Pestigo Fire Museum houses that tabernacle. That museum, located in the former church building of St. Mary Parish, built in 1927, is at 400 Ocanto Avenue, and it's open from Memorial Day to October 8th. There was a theory that emerged in 1883 that told of a comet. The speculation is that the occurrence of the Pestigo and Chicago fires on the same day wasn't just a coincidence, but that all the major fires that occurred in Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin on that day were caused by the impact of fragments from Biela's Comet. This theory was revived in a 1985 book and investigated in a 2004 paper to the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Scientists with expertise in the area argue that meteorites cannot ignite a fire, as they're cold to touch when they reach the Earth's surface, and there are no credible reports of any fire anywhere having been started by a meteorite. Additionally, various aspects of the behaviors of the Chicago and Pestigo fires attributed to extraterrestrial agency have more mundane explanations. In any event, no external source of ignition was needed. Numerous small fires from land-clearing operations and other causes were already burning in the area after a tinder-dry summer, generating so much smoke that the Green Island light was kept lit continuously for weeks before the main fire. 
all that was needed to generate the firestorm, as well as other fires in the Midwest, were the winds from the front that moved in that evening. The combination of wind, topography, and ignition sources that created the firestorm primarily representing the conditions at the boundaries of human settlement and natural areas, is known as the Peshtigo Paradigm. The condition was closely studied by the American and British military during World War II to learn how to recreate firestorm conditions for bombing campaigns against cities in Germany and Japan. The bombing of Dresden and the even more severe bombing of Tokyo by incendiary devices resulted in death tolls comparable to the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And thanks to all of you who are supporting our show monthly by pledging at patreon.com forward slash 1001storiesnetwork. Your support is greatly appreciated, and you're helping us in a big way to make it to 1001 episodes, which is my full-time goal. Our Patreon supporters, depending upon their level of support, which starts at $1 a month, receive our mostly ad-free Best of 1001 episodes and our new Prime Cuts episodes, which are exclusive 1001 stories that I'm enjoying sharing with our Patreon supporters very much. Join us. Thank you. We started a new Facebook page called 1001 Stories Network to provide a Facebook presence for our network, which now consists of four 1001 shows, those being 1001 Heroes, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, and 1001 Radio Days. There at that Facebook page, 1001 Stories Network, you can find links to our free podcast hosts like Apple Podcasts, Player.fm, and CastBox.fm, so you can conveniently listen to, store, and be reminded of new episodes full-time and free. That's one subscription that never costs you. We provide all 1001 shows free. We're family-friendly, our audience is smart, historically motivated, and curious, and many like classic stories, as witnessed by the huge growth of 1001 Stories for the Road and 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We are very proud to say we're now approaching the 5 million listens a year milestone and that we've passed the 1,000 reviews mark across the network. All this thanks to you for sharing and subscribing to us, and reviewing. We do need reviews at all four shows, starting with 1001 Heroes, Apple listeners, or any of you listening to an Android podcast that offers a review space. As long as those are brought to us via email through our accounts with them, we will read them. Thank you very much, and thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.